Thanks for listening to this week's sermon from Epicos Church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. For more information about Epicos, please visit epicos.org. Well, good morning. Good morning. My name is Frank. I'm the Mayfair Road campus pastor. And good morning to everybody over at Mayfair Road, Eastside, and Sherman Park. I'm glad that you're here today. If you have your Bible open to Colossians chapter 3, uh, while you're turning, the reason why I'm not wearing the Britney Spears mic right now is because I have a cough, and I want to cough into the microphone, so I'm going to like do that for you so your ears don't get blown. Uh, I, 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 while you're turning, also, I'm typically a fan of Disney and Pixar films, but there are two films I dislike a lot, and I want to tell you about it, all right? Uh, one is the movie Up, because the first 20 minutes of Up is the most depressing piece of animation ever created. All right? I don't care that there's a cute talking dog. I'm bawling through all those scenes. All right? It's too sad for me. And the other movie is the movie Wally because it's depressing because it's happening. You know what I'm saying? Like it's a little too real. All right? Let me give you the plot for Wally because I want to talk about that for a second. Uh, Wally is about. It takes place in the 22nd century. Uh, Earth is unhabitable because of consumerism and corporate greed. Earth is a giant garbage wasteland and all of humanity has been evacuated on these giant spaceships. So there's these trash compacting robots who are on Earth trying to clean up the trash in hopes that one day humans can come back. Well, the movie jumps 700 years later and Earth is still trashed and there's one robot left and that's the robot Wally. Uh, in the future, we get a glimpse of what life is like, and we get to see that humans are these big blobs who can't walk and are catered to by robots and are sitting in recliners and are glued to their screens watching TV all day and drinking Slurpees. Uh, one of the movie's sub-themes of this, of this film is that humanity wasn't made for this. We, they're mocking this idea, this, this laziness. We were not made to sit in recliners, drink Slurpees, and watch TV all day. As much as maybe some of you would like, that's not what we were made to do. One, of Wally, one thing that Wally knows that the Bible has been saying for thousands of years is that you and I were created to be active, to work with our hands and our minds. We were created to work. I think... When some of us think of the Garden of Eden, we think of it as like a heavenly, all-inclusive resort, right? Like if Adam and Eve just didn't sin, they would be like living in paradise with like a pet lion eating fruit all day. But that's not how the Bible describes what Eden was like and what it was like before the fall. God commands the first humans to subdue the earth and have dominion over it. God commands his people to cultivate and to create because God is a God who worked for six days and then he rested on the seventh. And so you and I, as people created in his image, we are to work and rest. Tim Keller, in his book, Every Good Endeavor, describes a biblical understanding of work like this. He says, it is the rearranging, it is rearranging the raw materials of God, God's creation, in such a way that it helps the world in general and people in particular to thrive and to flourish. We were not created to be on this planet to sit around and do nothing. We were created to work to the glory of God. And so today's passage gives us principles regarding work, both to employees and to employers. However, we're going to have to work through some context to get there. But once you understand the context, I believe that maybe today you'll leave this place just a little bit different when it comes to your perspective of your work. All right. So we're going to read from Colossians 3, verse 22, and we're gonna actually read through 4, chapter 1. You can follow along with me. <coughs> it, says, it says, bond servants, 
obeying everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, if you heard me read that passage and you're like, I thought this was a sermon about work, feels like we're going to hear a sermon on slavery, right? That's, that's a fair sense, okay? The issue stems from that very first word, that bondservants word, because in the Greek, the word is the word doulos, and doulos is kind of a complicated word because we don't have a, a, a true English word for that word that was spoken in the first century. Uh, in, depending on whatever English Bible translation you have, that word doulos is translated as servants, slave, or bond servants. And all of those words are a fair translation of the word doulos. But slaves or bond servants, though they're appropriate for that word doulos, the problem is, is that when you hear the word slave or slavery, your mind goes to uh, 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 chattel slavery in the American South. The kind of slavery where they uh, stole people from Africa and brought them across the ocean to work in difficult, hard labor. But that's not exactly the type of slavery that you see in the first century in the Roman Empire. In the Roman Empire, 50% of the Roman Empire population were slaves. And what's interesting about it is that there were so many of them that you wouldn't necessarily know who were slaves and who were not, especially because they weren't working typical slave jobs. Some slaves were doctors. There were teachers. There were lawyers. Usually, sometimes, most of the time, whatever the master's profession was, that too would be the slave's profession. And so some people were born into slavery. Others were people who were captured during Roman colonization. And so they were forced into slavery. And some sold themselves into slavery. But the biggest difference between chattel slavery in the Americas and what we see in the Roman Empire was that it was an, an economic thing, not a race-based thing. You could buy yourself out of slavery if you got enough money. You could also have other means to, to free yourself from slavery. And, and as I said, that, hear me, don't think that by me explaining that, that uh, uh, chattel slavery was worse or that, uh, that the, the type of slavery in the Roman Empire was better. I'm just saying it's not the same thing. There were some good masters who treated their slaves as an apprentice and, and they were benevolent and generous and there were cruel masters who were evil. To say that slavery in America was the same as slavery in the Bible is just not valid. Chattel slavery was always intended to be dehumanizing towards those who were enslaved. While slavery in the first century, dehumanization wasn't always the, the process of their type of slavery. I think Paul is bringing up slavery because he says something earlier in the chapter that forces you, especially if you were a slave at that time, or if you were a master at that time, to ask a question, well, what does that mean for us? Because for a couple of chapters now, Paul has been explained that Jesus is enough. You don't need anything to add to Jesus to be made whole. Jesus plus anything equals ruining everything, right? So if you have been raised with Christ, everything changes. And more specifically, we become a new creation. And that is most seen, most evident in the way we interact with others. And so everyone has equal value. 
No one has a special status before God. No one has special claim on God. Everyone deserves equality and dignity no matter how the world wishes to divide us. And he gets to that point in verse 11 of chapter three. He says, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And so Paul just disrupted every social class by, by saying everyone gets Jesus the same way, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. But, but it leads to this question, how should then these new slaves who are Christians see their masters if we're all equal? And how should these Christian masters see their slaves if we're all brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, that's why he wrote these five verses. But before we talk about those five verses, there's one question that I think is fair that might be in some of y'all's minds right now. Why doesn't Paul just say Christians should free their slaves? Like it feels like we know like, like 2,000 years later that like slavery is bad and Christians should not buy and sell people. Like that feels like kind of fundamental, obviously, for all of us, right? But, but, but why doesn't Paul be more explicit about this? Well, to be fair, Paul did in a different letter. In the book of Philemon, in the letter to Philemon, which we preached about in their new city series, there was a runaway slave named Onesimus. And he met Paul in Rome, and he became a Christian. And Paul knows and loves this man, Philemon, who happens to be Onesimus' master. And so after Paul spends time with Onesimus and works with Onesimus, he wants to send Onesimus back to Philemon, but he writes a letter ahead of, of, of Onesimus to make sure a couple things. Philemon, who was a Christian who lived in Colossae, Paul wrote to Philemon appealing to him to say, hey, when you take back, I want you to take back Onesimus, but don't punish him, punish him for anything he's done. In fact, I don't want you to receive him as a slave. Paul says, I want you to receive him as your brother. He says, to receive him how you would receive me if I were coming to you. Paul even says that if he owes you money, if there's a debt, Paul will take care of it. But, but, but when you receive Onesimus back, don't treat him like a slave anymore. Treat him like a brother in Christ. As we look at church history, one thing we learn around this time is that by the time Christianity began, Slavery was already on the decline in the Roman Empire. But as Christianity grew in the Roman Empire, it also accelerated the decrease of slavery. But here is why I think specifically Paul wasn't more explicit in his letters about asking Christians to free slaves. Paul was more interested in the heart change than just the title change. Let me explain it this way. When slavery was abolished in this country, did racism end? No. Right? It took another 100 years for the civil rights movement to begin. And then even after that, the ugly, disgusting sin of racism is still lurking around us today. Slavery must, needed to be abolished. But racism, the ugly sin that's at the root of modern day slavery in the Americas needed to be abolished as well. Christianity claims that all who are in Christ are brothers and sisters with one another. And though this would inherently upend slavery as the gospel transforms hearts. Paul was already making radical requests from the slave-master relationship and the gospel would take it even further as it resides in the hearts of people. By the second century, slavery ended in the Roman Empire. And as you read the Bible and examine the topic of slavery, I promise you, it becomes very clear that the Bible does not endorse slavery or support it. 
The Bible shows us time and time again, offering dignity and value to slaves in a world that sees them as property. And there's a constant fight, a theme of fighting for the freedom of those in bondage. The Bible does not endorse slavery. Sinful people always want to find ways to subjugate other people. But the gospel transforms hearts when you see slave masters and slaves interacting as brothers and sisters in Christ. So I have a bunch of resources for you, books, articles, videos. If you want to go to the hub.epicos.org, there's going to be a bunch of stuff there for you to read that I think is really helpful. But also there's other resources from the rest of today's sermon as well. So go to the hub after church to get those resources. But as I said before, we don't have a one-to-one example for that word doulos in our English language. But as you read what Paul has been is asking of bond servants and their masters, the principles of this passage directly correlate with your job, with your work, with your coworkers and your boss. The, the passage is embedded in a section where Paul is talking about husbands and wives, parents and children. This is about how the gospel affects the everyday relationships to the people you interact with the most. And for us, that close relationship that most connects to this passage is the relationship that you have with your boss or that you have with your employees. If Paul is going to say, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, he means everything. There's no sacred and secular divide in Paul's mind. There's no church version you and then a work version you. Chapter three began like this. He said, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So, so if you are a Christian, if your life is hidden in Christ and Christ is your life, your marriage is going to look different than the rest of the world. Your relationship with your kids is going to look different than the rest of the world. Your relationship with your parents is going to look different. But how does your work look different? That's where we get to verse 22. Follow along. Bond servants, obeying everything, those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. I got a couple, a bunch of words to describe what a Christian worker is like. If you take notes, you can write them down. But the first one is this. Christian workers are marked by obedience. They're marked by obedience. Paul is saying, when you are at work, you should work. If your boss has given you a task, you should do the task. But you might say, Frank, he says that we should obey in everything. What if my boss wants me to do something sinful? Great question. Don't do it. Like, it's not, it's not that hard. You don't do it, right? When Paul says obeying everything, he isn't implying you should do shady stuff, right? If your boss is trying to make you do illegal things, you should quit that job. Like, that's my affirmation to you. If your boss is making you do illegal things, put in your two weeks, and if you can't, get out sooner, right? Uh, if something goes against your convictions, it actually may be in your best interest for you to walk away from that job and get a new job for your walk with Jesus, God commands, God's commands supersede your bosses in that place. But most of the time, your boss just wants you to do your job. Your boss doesn't want you scrolling on Instagram all day. He doesn't want you gossiping all day. They, they, she doesn't want you to, 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 to go have 30-minute bathroom breaks. Your boss has jobs, has tasks for you to do, and most of the time, they're not illegal or sinful. So Paul is saying, do the work, obey your boss. He says, not by way of eye service, as in don't just work when your boss is looking. I went to a super underfunded high school 
And our teachers were spread thin. Sometimes our teachers would have to teach two classes at the same time. And I remember there'd be moments where my teacher would be there for the first like 10 minutes and then jump to the next class to be there for 10 minutes and then come back. And every time my teacher would do that, my teacher would say to us like, okay, read in your textbooks or work on something while, until, while they're gone until they come back. But do you know what we didn't do when the teacher left? We didn't work, right? We were goofing around. We were, we were making beats on the table, freestyle battles in the back. And, and we were just like being silly the whole time. But once the teacher got back, we were all sitting up straight in our textbooks pretending we were working when we didn't do any of that for the 10, 15 minutes the teacher was gone. Don't judge me for that, by the way. That was BC Frank. That was before Christ Frank. I've been made new, all right? You know. Only working when your boss sees you is deceptive. Eye service results in half-done jobs. The room is swept, but the dirt is brushed under the carpet. Work breaks extend until the boss returns. This is people-pleasing. Paul is saying, don't just work when the attention is on you so that your boss has the illusion of you working. Work even when no one's around. He says, he goes on to say that he wants you to work with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. When you work, you are to work with integrity. Work with a sincere heart. Paul is getting to the, to the actual root as to why we should work like this in the first place. He says that we are to be fearing the Lord. In other words, out of reverence to God should our work be. Paul is tying together our work with our worship to God. Which makes sense because in verse 17 he says, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And as Jacob said a couple weeks ago, reflecting the name of Jesus is worship. And your work is a part of everything in your life. So the fundamental motivation for right behavior, or in this case, the fundamental motivation of working faithfully is a transformed heart, wholly committed to the Lord. Let's go on, verse 23. He says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Christian workers are marked by diligence. They're marked by diligence. I love how many times Paul will use the word whatever in his letters because he, he wants to make sure you don't find any loopholes in the stuff that he's commanding you to do. I think there's two lies that we as, as people have started believing about work and us millennials have been eating this up for a long time and Gen Z is starting to believe it too. Here's lie number one. If you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. It's a lie. Like, it ain't true, right? It, it, all work is going to have the good days and the bad days. Every job has a honeymoon period. Stay there long enough, you'll find out what's wrong with your job. Every great job has parts that you're gonna love and parts that you're not. If there's times where work feels unpleasant, that's because God told us it was gonna be like that. Genesis 3 tells us that after the fall, even the best jobs are gonna be difficult and not fun at times because sin has entered the world. The second lie is that work has to always be fulfilling and satisfying. Every job you have, if, you can't, if your job is not fulfilling and satisfying, quit it and find the job that will be. The reason why that's a lie is because there's only one thing in you that can fully satisfy you, that can fully make you feel complete, and that is the Lord. Sometimes you just gotta to go to work. Sometimes you just need to do something to be able to provide an income in your house. We got to stop romanticizing every aspect of our life. Our life isn't a rom-com. 
Like life is real, you know? Whether it's flipping burgers, selling cell phone plans, or working on spreadsheets, what matters most is that you're doing your job with excellence for the Lord. That excellence is your worship to God, and God is your fulfillment and your satisfaction in your life. Reorient what you think is where you're gonna find your fulfillment, because it ain't gonna be in your job, but it will be found in Jesus. In whatever you do, Work heartily for the Lord and not for men. I'm not a, a Bible highlighter-er or underliner-er, but if you do, I want you to underline as for the Lord and not for men. Because the reason why I say Christians ought to work with diligence is that diligence is something you dedicate yourself to. And here, the reason why you should dedicate yourself to your work, even if your job isn't something you're super in love with, is because what separates a blood-bought Christian worker from a non-Christian worker is that our work doesn't end in the office. Our work doesn't end with the sale. Our work doesn't end with the project because our work is not necessarily ending with our boss. It ends with the Lord. We have a lot of great volunteers here at Epicos. I mean, Y'all just like serve at all the campuses with such excellence. We, the kids are hearing about Jesus. The bands are crushing it. The coffee is hot. The bulletins are being passed out. I could go on. But the reason why y'all are so great at serving here at church, I believe, is because you have a sense that you are serving the Lord when you're here for the hour that you are supposed to serve. But friends, you are serving the Lord Monday through Friday, every single day with your jobs. If you are a doctor, a teacher, if you're in sales or finance, whether you work at home or you are a homemaker, you are working for the Lord. And your work is a representation of the kind of person the Lord is transforming in you. Let me, let me explain it this way. When you leave here today, some of y'all are going to go to brunch, some of y'all are going to go to lunch, you're going to go to Bel Air or Hollander or some other place that has really nice eggs at 12 p.m., right? You're going to go somewhere. And I hope you know that when you go there on a Sunday around this time, you are known as the church crowd. And so with the understanding, I pray that you are tipping well and that you are treating the wait staff with respect and kindness because when you don't, you are telling the restaurants in our area that Christians are crappy customers, right? In the same way, if your boss knows you're a Christian, which they should, You are a representative of how Christians work and function in the workplace. And when you are on social media all day, or you're gossiping with a coworker, or uh, you are telling your employer and you're telling your coworkers that Christians are crappy employees. However, Christians do not only work for earthly bosses. We work for the Lord. So when you work hard, faithfully and diligently, that goes past your boss because you're honoring God and you're transforming your work into worship. You are also sending a message that I hope every employer can believe, that when they hire a Christian, they are some of the best employees they could have. That Christians always do their job, they're always on time, they're faithful and reliable. I hope that's true for your boss to believe, and I hope that's true for everybody, that Christians are the best employees. Verse 24 and 25, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Christian workers are marked by patience. They're marked by patience. We struggle with work because we don't get paid the amount we want. We don't get recognized for the work we do. And then you see someone 
<clears throat> you see someone at your job who like doesn't work, they're lazy, but then you find out they get paid more than you. They have better benefits than you. They have the boss wrapped around their finger and that's frustrating. That feels unfair. But Matthew 6 tells us that the Lord sees what is done in secret. God sees your work. He sees you when you're putting the extra effort in the project and you feel unrecognized. He sees when you choose to do the right thing and you correct the invoice when there's an incorrect charge. He sees you doing all those drafts, working hard when no one else is even trying. God rewards faithful workers even when no one else does. And that should encourage you. Because even when your paychecks aren't looking right, God pays us so well that when we get to heaven, we will wish we had served him even more here on earth. You, you, you work for the Lord. Your boss's name may be on the paychecks, but the Lord has something beautiful for you in his heavenly escrow that you can't wait to see when you get there. We are to trust that God will hold everyone accountable for what they do, and we work faithful to God. We have talked about Christian employees and how we're to be the workers, but some of you guys work in middle management, right? You have, some, you have a couple people under you. Some of you maybe have uh, projects where you're the project lead and you are to oversee a group of people. And some of you maybe are even business owners, entrepreneurs, CEOs. So what exactly does the Lord want you to do with these passages? Well, that's where he gets to verse one of chapter four. He says, masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And so Christians with authority should lead justly, fairly, and with accountability. I think it's verses like these that began the upending of slavery in the first century. Slave masters, when they became Christians, realized that they had a master over them that was the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and with these words, to treat servants with equity and equality, it flips the cultural institution of slavery on its head, at least within the church. So Paul is saying slave masters to treat slaves the way God would treat them. And so employees, CEOs, entrepreneurs, if you're over people, I, 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 I've only been a Christian for, uh, since I was 17 and, and I've had been given a couple opportunities to have of, of influence over some people. So I'm gonna give you my, my best and my only leadership advice when it comes to how to treat people. You ready? Here's my advice. Treat your people with the way Christ treats you. Treat your people the way Christ treats you. Love them, listen to them, show compassion, give them grace, be merciful and generous. There's a book I'm reading right now about Christian leadership and this, this one line stood out to me. He said, a Christian leader is a Christian from core to crust. Everything about them is Christian. There is no sacred and secular divide. When you put your boss pants on, you still need the blood of Jesus to forgive your sins as the person, as the barista handing you your coffee in the morning. If grace has saved you, lead your people with that same grace. The greatest commandment is to love God and to love people. And that includes every single employee that you are responsible for. So you may have sat here for the past 27 minutes and be like, whoa, Frank is preaching a capitalist manifesto right now, right? He's like super into work, right? I'm just trying to read the Bible. I, I, don't, have any, uh, I don't have anything to talk about with the economics, or the philosophy of a capitalist society. But let me tell you one thing that Paul is not telling you right now. Paul does not want you to read this and overwork yourself and become an, a, a, a workaholic. 
There are too many Christians who have taken these verses out of context as a theological guise to have an addiction to wealth and power and the exploitation of their workers. Listen, your family is more important than your work. The people at your work are more important than your work. Your faith is more important than your work. Don't take these passages to justify a ridiculous work schedule where your family never sees you and you sacrifice your health and you burn every relationship just because you're trying to stack up that pension, all right? God has the perfect work-life balance. God worked and then he rested. And we were created to follow that example. Christians should be the best employees. We should have the best attitudes. We should be the most dependable, have the highest integrity. Believers should be faithful and hardworking because if we're not, we're actually sinning by our laziness and disobedience towards our boss. The reason why you should be a great worker isn't because I've been yelling at you for 30 minutes trying to convince you to be a good worker. The reason why is because you represent me And I represent you, and we all represent one another. But more importantly, all of us represent Christ and his kingdom. And whether you like it or not, your work ethic is tied to the credibility of your Christian witness. How you work will determine if people will want to hire more Christians or avoid hiring Christians. It will show people whether we should work for Christians or avoid working for Christians. Not just with work. But in all the ways we behave, the watching world determines if they should give credence about the words you say about Jesus based on how you live. Your work ethic is one of the easiest ways to demonstrate the powerful transformation of the gospel in your life. Or your work ethic will show the world that the gospel can't be trusted because Christians are just as gossipy, just as lazy, and just as disobedient as everyone else. John Mark Comer, in his book, Garden City, he said, our job, is to make <coughs> our job is to make the invisible God visible, to mirror and mimic what he is like to the world. We can glorify God by doing our work in such a way that will make the invisible God visible by what we do and how we do it. Paul has been arguing that Jesus is enough. You don't need to add anything to be made whole in Christ. If we have been, made, if we have been raised with Jesus, then our lives are hidden in him, which means... You are secure in Christ. Nothing can overthrow the powerful work of the cross. Jesus' blood was sufficient to purchase you from the domain of darkness and bring you into his marvelous light. You are justified and forgiven before a holy God because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And then when he resurrected, his resurrection was enough to resurrect you, to bring you into newness of life so that you can be the child of God you were created to be before sin ruined everything. This security, this this should give us some confidence that when we read his word and it tells us how to live, we can trust these words that God is good and his ways of our lives, how we should live our lives can be trusted. The Holy Spirit is working in you to transform you to be more like Jesus. And that transformation should be seen in every facet of your life. And the most visible place that transformation is going to be seen is in your everyday relationships. So what did we talk about last week? Christian wives and Christian husbands have this sacrificial love towards each other where they can feel safe and secure in their marriage. It's special. 
Christian children are obeying their parents. Christian parents are not provoking their kids. So Christian families are transformed by the gospel. And in our communities, they're wondering, why is that family so different than everyone else? And as we have contextualized today's passage, Christian employees are working hard for their employer and by doing so are working hard for the Lord. All the while Christian employers are fair and just to their employees, leading them in a God-honoring way. And my hope and Paul's hope, and more importantly, I believe it's the Lord's plan that as those in your life who don't have a relationship with Jesus observe your marriage, as they observe your family, as they work alongside with you at your jobs, as they do business with you, may they get a glimpse that God is good, that he can be trusted, and, and, and he is worth living our lives for. Because when Jesus is your life, it changes everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our Lord and Master, we trust you. We believe in you. You are good to us. You are kind and you are gracious and you're compassionate to us in, in spite of the fact that we don't even deserve it. Lord, it, it is your love and grace towards us that gives us an example of how we are to, to show love and grace towards others. Lord, you have changed us and transformed us from being rebels against you and your kingdom to adopted children of God transformed by the gospel. Lord, may us not be a people who just sit on this transformation, just waiting to get to heaven, but let us be a people active in every aspect of our lives, in the way we treat our spouses, in the way we treat our children, in the way we treat our parents, in the way we, we work. Let this gospel transform everything in us so that when the world watches us, they can ask us, what is different about you? And we can point them to Jesus. And then more importantly, as we work, as we live, as we, as we be with our family and friends, let everything we do be an act of worship in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Be with us, Lord. In your son's name I pray, amen.